0: Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio, also known as Randy Newberg Unfiltered. We're, uh, I'm going to make a little noise here. We are doing something, or I'm doing something really strange today. I've never done this before. I'm sitting out in the mountains of New Mexico waiting on my hunting buddies and my camera guy to return. And since it doesn't look like they're going to get here for quite a while, I decided I'm going to do my own podcast, a live in the field podcast from the Polona Mountains of Unit 16E in western New Mexico. Yeah, it here's the gig. Here's why I'm not out hunting today. Um, some of you know that I have a, a liver problem, and yesterday, Corey Jacobson, my, my partner on this hunt, decided we needed to go on a 14.8 mile hike. <laughs> 85 degrees heavy packs and uh that was day five of, of my hunting and if you hear a little wind noise uh this this podcast isn't going to be perfect because i'm sitting here uh trying to be in the the quietest place possible you might hear some mosquitoes buzzing some wind some atvs drive by whatever but so anyhow the long hike yesterday uh did my liver in so, when I woke up this morning, I was all swollen, uh, borderline functioning, and those guys went out. I don't want to hold them up. So, the deal was, I thought, anyhow, that they were going to be back at noon, unless they shot an elk or they were into elk. So, they're now about six hours late. So, I figure they're probably into the elk. So, hopefully, Corey filled this tag, but I slept for 14 hours, and now I feel way better. So... I think I might be able to pull off the podcast idea. And in this, I, uh, I, I I, kind of anticipated this might be something we do out here. Corey and I are going to do a podcast later when, before we leave in a few days. But I wrote down a bunch of questions from our Hunt Talk website that I thought, well, if uh, I end up doing a solo podcast, I'll go through a bunch of those questions. So that's probably going to be a lot of the content today. It's going to be a lot of elk content because it is elk season right now. Uh, today is September 20th, and for whatever reason, the elk are not bugling here in New Mexico. And a bunch of guys have sent me text messages saying the same thing. Man, I was just in Montana. I didn't hear anything for bugling. I have no idea why. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you how we what our order of blaming things is after I get through uh, talking about our sponsors uh the sponsors for this podcast uh leupold uh they're not only the sponsor of fresh tracks uh the tv show but they are now the title sponsor of hunt talk radio and i'm very thankful for that my relationship from with leupold goes back to well when i was a teenager and i had my first Leopold scope but my business relationship goes back with them since this uh All my platforms started in 2008. So very, very thankful to have them. Uh, The other group we have is GoHunt.com. And uh, if you go to GoHunt.com and use the promo code HuntTalk, H-U-N-T-T-A-L-K, the new uh, incentive for signing up is a $50 Sportsman's Warehouse gift card. So go to GoHunt.com forward slash Insider. And sign up, and if you sign up, use the promo code Hunt Talk H-U-N-T-T-A-L-K. And not only are you going to get your $50 gift card, but you are going to get the best information that you can, you can't find better information for applying for hunts. It's just that simple. If you're a person like me who does tons and tons of research, who spends their winter months trying to figure out, where can I draw a tag this year? What am I looking for in a unit? Gohunt.com is the place to go. Our other great sponsors are the folks over at Onyx Maps. Um, In fact, this unit here in New Mexico that we're in has a bad checkerboard, if you want to call it bad, uh, of public and private land. And all week we've been using our GPSs with uh, the Onyx Maps chips, and now they're rolling out the new, and they have been for most of this year, uh, it's the new hunt app and it's for smartphones and even if you don't have cell service you can download the maps to your smartphone and the gps on your smartphone will work with the maps that uh, on x has for you in their hunt app so another great group of people i i don't go anywhere without my on maps and then the other final partner that you know has been so gracious in how they've supported this podcast. And without these people, these podcasts wouldn't be possible. And that's why I always spend a few minutes at the beginning to, to recognize them. And that group is Orion Coolers. We are here in New Mexico. And I've been here now. Today is the 20th. I got here on the 13th. And it's been 85 degrees. And my one cooler that I have that's got my big frozen milk jugs, still has frozen milk jugs i went and checked on them today and we could if we shoot an elk we still have ice so i don't know how else to say it other than they just flat out are great coolers that work and when you look at them not only will you recognize them as the coolest colors in the cooler world how's that cool cool cooler color say that three times uh but you will just, if you buy one, you'll know that you bought the best cooler out there. So with that, uh, I'm going to give you a little update of where we've been so far this season. Uh, you heard the last podcast uh, from Yuma, Arizona. We You know that we were down there dove hunting. That was a ton of fun. But boy, is it hot. Uh, one thing about hunting doves in Yuma, I could not believe how many people go and do it. It is a, It is a tradition. For some of those girl, folks uh, that I ran into down there, they've been doing it for years and years and years. Uh, one guy said, yeah, this is our 28th year. And I think about that, and that's amazing. And I, and I looked around when he said that, and there was him, and then it looked like what I think was his son, and then his father. And uh, all uh, there's probably a group of 30 of them, all different ages. Uh, hey, that was just one of those hunts where you say, you know what, I'm just going to go have a ton of fun. And that's what I did. And prior to that, I was in Utah archery mule deer hunting. And boy, it was a brutal, brutal, tough hunt. Uh, but I was warned of that when I applied. I was told that that unit has very low deer densities. But if you find a deer, if you find a buck, odds are you're going to be a good buck. And in my, I think I hunted seven days. If I remember right. Anyhow, I found two bucks. And yeah, they were both whopper bucks. And you'll have to watch to see what happened. Uh, I can't spill all the beans or the network. if I sit here and tell everything that happened, the network's going to say, well, why do you even put these on TV then if you told everybody what the final outcome was? So that's what we've been doing so far. Uh, And now, uh, like I said... Seven days ago I got down here in New Mexico and I usually don't tell people uh where we hunt, but I'm gonna tell you where we're hunting on this one. It's unit sixteen E. Uh I've hunted here. This is my third archery hunt here. And the it it's just it's one of the easier units to draw, the sixteens, for a reason. It's got very complicated access because of the private land and the elk are in the places that are really tough i told you we did 14 miles yesterday we've been doing mm, i think the fewest we did was on the one day we only did about eight um most days we're doing 10 to 11 and this is not easy country it's big hillsides mountains of lava so any of you want to apply knock yourself out um (laughs) if you see the episode so far you're not going to want (laughs) to apply i'm trying to think let's see in my scouting day i saw six bulls and i was all excited Uh, i didn't see any cows and then my first hunting day before Corey and his camera guy could get here uh let's see i uh i saw two bulls right away in the morning i called in a bull that i that came in silent i didn't know he came in silent and then I bumped a group of cows, and that was it for that day, and then the first day Corey got here, uh, we just, boy, did we go on a long hike, Um, and that evening, the best encounter we've had so far of this entire hunt, Corey heard a bull about, I'd say, a mile, mile and a half away, and (laughs) I saw a cow and a calf, and he's like, I can hear a bull down there, and For all of you who have young kids, don't let them shoot without hearing protection like I did when I was a kid, because my left ear, if you think about someone who shoots right handed, their left ear is to the muzzle, I can't hear hardly anything out of my left ear, so whenever an elk bugles, I always point to the right, because I heard it out of my right ear, and Corey and the camera guys are always pointing a different direction, and I thought Corey was jerking my chain that there was a a bull bugling down there because I had my right ear to the other direction, and sure enough, there was. So it took us about, oh, I don't know, two hours to get off the mountain down onto this other ridge up the other side. And he made a bugle, and the bull bugled back. He said that bull is right at X. And so we snuck in there, and he let out and ripped another call and raked a tree and that bull was on its way and if you think about how you usually set up on an elk hunt um if you got a caller and someone out front the bull usually tries to circle downwind to see what's going on you know is this a cow is this a bull what what you know they they seldom do they come running and and just straight on and even put themselves upwind in the sound so I set up with all my shooting lanes expecting this bull to arc slightly downwind and I would be right there ready to shoot him. Well, he didn't do that. He came running straight in, 35 yards, stood behind some trees and uh boy is a nice bull. After he realized that we weren't what we thought he wa- what he thought we were, he decided to pack it up and get out of there. So that's why I'm, I'm willing to share information about this unit. Uh, it's it's just a tough place to hunt. And we've had, and you know, Corey and I are going to, we, we've been talking about this a lot over the last five days where we've been stomping the hills. is Why is it that the rut, every bit of research you can read about the elk rut is that it's a photo period uh, triggering mechanism. In other words, the length of the day is what triggers the rut. Well, how can we be here on September, well, whatever day we started, uh, the 15th, and we saw one big herd of cows, 60 cows in one herd, and they only had a little five-point bull with them, and while we were watching them that afternoon, the five-point walked out of the herd. It's like, wait a second. (laughs) I thought the length of the day is what triggered the rut we are in a full moon phase yeah it's been ridiculously hot but i'm not much into those kind of theories or i haven't been until this hunt and uh, i don't know if that's part of what has has caused things to to be the way they are the the moon was so full the first three days and it was coming up right about eight o'clock at night just after the sun had set and then it would be up most of the night and I don't know if that screws up that photo period thing or or what happens but uh we've been out walking back to our our trailheads in the dark many nights and bugling on our way back and we're not hearing much activity in the dark either and we've covered so many ridges so many basins it's it's unbelievable and If it was a place I'd never hunted before, I'd chalk it up to the fact that, okay, I just don't know what I'm doing or where to go. But I've been in this unit before. I arrowed a bull in 2010 uh, and could have shot a couple more on that hunt. And they were just, it was the same time, same second season, late season. And they were going crazy. They were just lighting it up. And then I was here in 2013, three years ago. And, again, same late second season and bugling like crazy. Every group of three to five to ten cows had lots of bulls running around chasing them. So, I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, I I really don't know. It's, uh, it's crazy. But uh, the tactic that we've been using here, or trying to use, with very little success to show for it so far, is that my, you know, a lot of you hear me talk in my videos or in my presentations about the five periods of the rut, or five periods of the elk calendar. There's early season, which is usually in August, then there's pre-rut, which is September 1st to maybe the 12th to 15th, somewhere in there. Then there's the peak rut, where I'm at right now, which is like September... 12th to 15th towards maybe the first week of october and then you got post rut which is sometime mid-october to the first of november and for me anything after november is late season well in all my presentations all my experience all the hunters i talk to uh, the easiest time to find elk is the peak rut they're vocal the bulls are moving a lot you'll glass a lot of them because they're looking for cows you'll hear them Uh, there's just a lot going on, but I'm embarrassed to say that for a guy who supposedly is, is, uh, the guy who should know this stuff, I'm, I'm swinging and missing a lot here. (laughs) And, uh, there's feed everywhere. That's one of the crazy things. So the normal pattern for peak rut is to find bulls, you got to find cows because the primary need during the peak rut is breeding. So if you find the cows, you're going to find the bulls. Well, where do you find the cows? For the cows, their primary need is still food and water, and to some degree, if it's hot like this, shade and shelter. So this unit is awash with food. There's gram of grass up to your knee everywhere. So you really can't locate... Okay, I know there's this little patch of feed here, this kind of feed there. The entire unit is loaded with feed. So that's hard to pinpoint them with there's a lot of water there's been decent rains this summer so all of the cattle stock tanks all of the the natural water sources are there so it's there's really not a lot of places to congregate them based on water so my theory is we just haven't found where they're at they are here and we just haven't found them now a lot of this unit is private so it's very possible that the that the cows could be on private and they've brought the bulls with them so i don't i i can't rule that out as a possibility but man for as as good as this unit usually has been to me this is of course obviously you invite one of your best friends down oh it's gonna be so great blah 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 sure enough you draw the tag and he comes down and what happens you get the big zero. So anyhow, that's kind of the update of where I'm at today. Um, I'm waiting for the guys to come back. I hope that Corey shot an elk. Um, it'd be cool if he did, even if I wasn't there. But, uh, as I said at the beginning, when my liver flares up, I just got to take 10, 12, 14 hours and do nothing but sleep or i end up in a bad way so that's what i did today sent them out and said will you take over hosting this show <laughs> uh, but anyhow i'm gonna start getting to some of these comments that i some of these questions from our hunt uh forum uh A bunch of people uh, as always send in really really cool questions and a lot of them are equipment related and i'll apologize that i really don't get into the equipment discussions and the reason is that you see me use what i use on the tv show you you maybe read about what i use if you read any of our stuff out on hunt talk you see who sponsors these platforms and i've come to my decisions on equipment through trial and error just about every piece of equipment that i have that you see me use that i'm promoting as part of our platforms that is sponsoring our platforms most of those are things that i've used long before the tv show and i i know so much of it is personal preference uh, about hunting style or about you know oh i i always have used this or whatever so i I really don't like to get into answering people's questions about, you know, what, what is the best, uh, I don't know what to say, uh, what, what's, what's the best uh, water filter? I'm looking at a water filter right now. Um, well, I use platypus and catadine water filters. Doesn't mean they're necessarily the best. It's just that for my type of hunting, it's what I use. Um, uh, The other part of it is I get a lot of questions about packs. I use Mystery Ranch packs. Uh, You know that because Dana uh, from Mystery Ranch, the founder, was on the podcast quite a while ago. And uh, I started using Mystery Ranch packs uh, just when they started. And it came about of trial and error. I used all kinds of different packs, supposedly this great pack, that great pack, and I ended up with a bunch of broken packs in my shop, and uh, I just, I got tired of the failures, so that's how I settled on that, Kenetrek boots, I, I've i been using Kenetrek boots since Jim started Kenetrek, um, and they do me extremely, extremely well, uh, so I, I could go on and on about all those, but For those of you who have sent questions about equipment and asked why don't I use or why don't I talk about this on the podcast or will you tell me more about this equipment or that equipment Uh, to me uh, equipment is very much a function of what your hunting style is. Some people aren't into backpack hunting some are Um, some people are into you know guided hunting or whatever and so they don't need maybe some of the things i need there's some people like long-range shooting and so they're going to use something different than i use so that's for those of you who sent in the the equipment uh questions and the fact that i've overlooked them uh that's why it's it's not because equipment isn't important it's just that i think over the course of time you'll settle on your own equipment of what you find is useful and helpful so that said, um I pulled out a, an older question that was out there, and the reason I'm going to get to it first is because it asks about do I worry about moon phases in selecting my hunts. And I thought that with the struggles we've had during a full moon phase here in New Mexico, that'd be a really good question to talk about. And maybe I should save it for the podcast I do with Corey here in a few days, but for me personally, I have to go and hunt no matter what the moon phase is, no matter what the weather is, because for the TV show, I have to get, I have to deliver 10 episodes, which usually takes anywhere from 10 to 12 hunts per year. And uh, sorry if you hear some noise. There's an ATV driving by my camp here. And uh, this guy must road hunt. This is like the eighth time he's driven by this afternoon. I. I'm not sure what the deal is here. The other day on the mountain, we heard some elk down below us, and some guys came driving by, and they were piggybacked on their ATV, and, uh, one guy's driving, the other guy's sitting slightly above him, and he's got his bow at the ready, like, <laughs> what's the deal, dude? <laughs> Can to just drive on by and slouch one, or what the heck, but, anyhow, back to moon phases, uh, because I have to do uh, as many hunts as, as are required to get the TV show done, I don't pay any attention to moon phase. I just apply for tags. If I left open that eight to, you know, maybe it's an eight-day period, maybe it's a 10-day period of going from the quarter moon that comes into the full moon to the to the receding quartering moon, um, I, I'd have to block out so much of the schedule that I wouldn't be able to to get enough hunts done. So, And and with that, I've never really noticed a huge difference between full moon and new moon or quarter moon or anything else, except for this hunt. (laughs) And I think when we we have a hunt that is difficult or we have a hunt that isn't successful, we have a tendency to try to find something as the reason of, well, this is why it didn't work full moon and very often the moon is the biggest thing to blame or often the weather i'd say those are are the two biggest things but before i talk uh, i got i'll wrap this up with a bit of humor so here's how it works in our operation when you blame something and you, you all know that i'm an equal opportunity abuser an equal opportunity supporter when it comes to politics i'm i don't really care about parties but this, this answer that that we have for what caused our problems has a little bit of politics to it, and it's all out of good humor. So, But uh, if something goes wrong on a hunt with us, the first person you blame is the camera guy. It's always the camera guy's fault. And there might be an opportunity where the camera guy is not around, so you can't blame him. So if you're hunting a place like Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming, and... You, 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 you're you in an endemic wolf area, then if, if it's not the camera guy's fault, then it's always the wolf's fault. Anyway, I always laugh. So, so my tongue is firmly in cheek here when I say this. Uh, and if you're hunting a place without wolves and your camera guy wasn't around, you couldn't blame him, then you have the default blame of all things, according to a lot of people in my family. And that's about Obamacare. So I'm about ready to blame this bad elk hunt, uh, the struggles we're having on Obamacare. Some people will say that there are Mexican wolves down here, and I know we're right on the fringe of that reintroduction area, but I'm, I think I'm going to have to go with Obamacare as the problem for this hunt. So uh, those of you who want to blame it on full moons or blame it on weather, remember, first you blame it on your camera guy, if possible. If not, then you blame it on wolves, and if not, when all else fails, you can blame Obamacare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some of you are right now saying, what in the hell does that have to do with anything, Randy? <laughs> <sighs> but anyhow, that's, that's my thoughts on moon phases. I, I don't pay any attention to it. I just go and hunt. Uh, to me, the moon phase is kind of like the weather i i'm gonna go and just do what i gotta do um if i only had one hunt a year uh given so many other people are adamant about moon phases i would probably try to plan my hunt in a new moon phase and stay away from that full moon just because there's a lot of other people way smarter than i am who would have some pretty strong opinions about moon phases so um all right what's the next one that we want to get to here we got i got a whole list of them here and uh, for all of you who are listening if you go to the hunt talk forum there is a section of the forum there about podcasts uh topics requests for topics and requests for guests so uh, anything you want to throw in there go ahead Uh, i'd love to love to hear what you want us to talk about um one of the questions is, Randy, never see you do any muzzleloader hunts. Why? Um, well, it's a function of a few things. And I hope I haven't answered this question on the podcast previously. Uh, if I have, bear with me, I'm going to answer it again. But the muzzleloader hunts uh, the, don't really fit into what what we've promised to deliver to our sponsors uh, and to our audience. And I know that a lot of people are passionate about muzzleloader hunting. Uh, every state has really different and quirky rules about muzzle loaders. Some states you can't use, uh, scope. Some you can, some states can't use powder or sabots, there's, there's just all kinds of things. So, uh, it's, it's a complicated area. If we, if you were going to do multiple states, uh, muzzle loader hunting because of the intricacies of the rules, um, I think that would be very difficult to, to stay on top of all that. But the other part is... We tell our sponsors, uh, and I think our audience has come to expect this, that we're going to deliver seven to eight rifle hunts, all Western big game and two to three archery hunts, all Western big game. So it's nothing against muzzleloader hunting. I actually own a muzzleloader and, uh, I've shot a few deer with it, but it just, it never is, is something that fits into our gig. And, uh, I I understand the passion for it Uh, there's times when I'd like to say gee I'd like to come hunt elk in muzzleloader season when they're bugling instead of a rifle season or I'd like to hunt deer with uh, a muzzleloader in the rut instead of a rifle out of the rut so that that's part of why we don't do that um and uh might not be the answer that that you want to hear but it's it's just why we don't do muzzleloader hunts um, there's a uh, we myself and the the camera guys we were talking about this the other day and it it was a question someone wrote and asked what's my opinion upon the about the use of drones because it is so easy now to buy one of these little drones that I think you can get them for thousand twelve hundred bucks and. I ran into some guys last year who they said, oh, it's so easy to scout. We just drive up to Trailhead Park, fly the drone over, and look and see if there's nothing there. Well, then we go. And I'm thinking, whoa, I would never thought about that. But I can see where that abuse would be there. And in the last year, a lot of states have passed laws against the use of drones or unmanned aircraft, I think is the term that they use. And for me, I have to get public land film permits. So if I'm going to hunt and film on BLM land, they have to issue me a permit. The federal government, uh, uh, the Forest Service, not the federal government, which is a part of the federal government. The U.S. Forest Service issues me a permit to do the same. And now most of their permits have language in there exclusively banning us from using drones. Uh, And that's fine. I'm good with that. So my opinion ap- about drones is like everything, there are people that are going to use it to, uh, uh, or, uh, let's just put it this way, its application in hunting is going to result in cutting corners, if you want to call it that, or using technology to their advantage to a point where there's some gray line out there, some, some point where we call it Fair chase versus not fair chase, ethical versus not ethical, whatever term you want to put to it. Um, and drones are just another one of those pieces of technology. And I, I can see where the abuse with drones could be significant. Uh, I just think about, uh, I helped a, a sheep hunt in the Missouri Breaks of Montana And if we would have had a drone, we could have flown a drone into every drainage and looked without having to hike those ugly, steep, nasty breaks. To me, that's not what sheep hunting is about. You know, to me now, hunting at that point has become nothing more than a video game. And I know some people would say, well, I want to kill the biggest animal in the least amount of time with the least amount of effort. Well, if that's what you want to do, knock yourself out, but... Uh, don't expect me to show up and testify on your behalf when the public hearing is held for the use of unmanned aircraft. And, and I know the backcountry hunters and anglers have been, uh, pretty active their state chapters, uh, in getting some rules changed about the use of drones and unmanned aircraft for, uh, for hunting purposes. So I, I'm not sure the person who sent in that question, if, if they are for drones or against drones, but, uh. My opinion is, I think you should be able to use a drone as long as you don't have a tag for that unit, as long as you're not helping somebody have a tag for that unit. Uh, (laughs) If you're doing anything related to hunting, you shouldn't be allowed to use a drone. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I mean, Arizona, they've got restrictions on when you can fly if you have a tag. Uh, So it's... Like all things, you know, people are going to push the limits. And they're going to push the limits and do things that cause regulations to get adopted. And I think the prohibition on the use of drones is, is a helpful one for, for the sake of hunting. Because let's face it, um, that's just <laughs> it's just the way it is. It, it, you know, we, we we as humans have a tendency to want to have... The, the easiest shortcut, the easiest path from A to B. But hunting has always been a self regulated activity. We have passed our own rules. All the rules related to what we kind of call fair chase, what we kind of call ethics, those were imposed by hunters. We have imposed them on ourselves. So when it comes to something like drones, expect the hunting community itself to stand forward and say, We're going to make this change. So, um, another question, and I don't know if I should even get into this, but I'm going to, uh, and I don't even know the people's names because I haven't seen the video, but there was a video that was put out there, uh, about a guy spearing a bear. Uh, I think it was in Canada and filmed it and I've not watched the video, so I can't comment on the video itself. And then everyone is irate because one of their big sponsors, Under Armour, dropped them, or this husband-wife couple. And a lot of people ask me, Randy, what's your opinion on that? I don't know that my opinion really matters, but I'll give it to you. Um, I I, I can't talk about the specifics of the video because, like I said, I haven't seen it but I can talk about the specific specifics of saying I'm going to be an ambassador for a brand and I'm going to be an ambassador for hunting. Those are two things that when when you say that's what I want to do, it comes with a big responsibility. And one of them's a business responsibility. You, so maybe we should just before people got all worked up about this and mad at Under Armour. Um they, they probably should have read what an ambassador contract reads like. And in my life as a CPA, <coughs> I sign tons of contracts. I read tons of contracts. I don't sign any contract without reading it through and saying, well, what would this mean to me or my client? So if you want to be an ambassador for a brand, and I don't care what brand it is, you are subjecting yourself to their whims they are signing the front of the check you are signing the back of the check it's that simple it is a contract and there's nothing in there that says they can only terminate you if you do something illegal there's nothing in there that says we can only terminate you for this or that no the language says we can terminate this agreement for anything we deem to be unfavorable to our brand and when you get into the big, large national, multinational companies who have large activities, large business activities outside of the hunting world, they're they're not gonna let a a tarnish be placed upon their brand for something in the hunting world. It's just <laughs> that's just business, folks. I, for anyone who wants to get all PO'd at, at Under Armour, Uh, And and I don't use Under Armour products, so I'm not here defending them or whatever. I'm just saying, if if you're mad about that, you understand very little about business and brand management. Anything that blew up the way that blew up is not good for that brand. It's just the way it is. I, I don't know how else to say it. So for people to get all wound up and... Yip and cry that oh this company is not there to support hunters da 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 and as long as it's legal they shouldn't be able to do that bullcrap read the contract the guy or the gal wants to get paid they signed a contract that said you can terminate me if i do anything that tarnishes your brand in your opinion and if you don't like that then don't sign the contract don't accept the check You know, it's not like these companies pay you to just go out there and hunt. They pay you to go out there and be a positive image for their brand and for hunting. In my case, for conservation. And it's just that simple. Accept the fact that that's what you signed on for or get the hell out. (laughs) I don't know else, you know. Some of you are probably listening, and saying, "Gee, that's a pretty strong opinion." Well, someone asked for it, and maybe it is a strong opinion, but it's that simple. I sign these contracts. I read them. There have been contracts I've rejected because of how it was written, or it just wasn't the you know the the company that I felt comfortable with, or whatever. That's my decision. Every company I work with, I am absolutely comfortable with. I am passionate about them and the contracts reflect that if i wasn't comfortable with it i shouldn't sign the deal and i shouldn't take the money it's that simple and then we get to the issue of hunting Uh, you know i said part of it's a business issue and part of it's a hunting image issue again i haven't seen the seen the uh uh video so i can't make a comment on it but I can make a comment on the fact that if it created that big of a shit storm, uh, and, and I'll tell you how I can measure how big of a storm it blew up. Uh, I have an Alaska black bear hunting video on, the, on my YouTube channel. And since this whole big fiasco with the, the couple from Canada, my Alaska ba- black bear hunting video, has its views have went through the roof. And its comments have went from being mostly positive to being mostly negative. Now a lot of people are searching, or somehow my videos got put into SEO and indexed along with his with that video wherever it got shared. Um, and so I know it reached a lot of people in the non-hunting world, and it didn't reach it negatively, um, or it didn't reach it positively. And I don't really care about the 10 or 12 or whatever percent who are considered anti-hunters. That's almost a a faith-based belief system that they have, and we're never going to change that. No more than you're going to convince my grandma that she shouldn't have been a Methodist. But it's the other people in between. And if we do something that creates that big of a storm, that big of a stir, and I've not read anything about that video... That, was po- that put hunting in a positive light. Nothing. Zero. I've heard some defenses of it that, oh, it was legal so it should be okay. Bullshit. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it needs to be promoted across media platforms as the image of hunting. It just... <laughs> I don't agree with it. Some people might call me out and say well too bad for you um yeah too bad for me but that's just how I I spend my whole life trying to be an ambassador for hunting so I take the issue pretty seriously and if people are doing things that do not put hunting in a favorable light and again like I said I'm gauging this based on the negative comments across the bigger media not based on the video I've not yet seen. That in itself tells me that we need to rethink some of the messaging we do. And you guys have heard me talk about that on podcasts with so many people about the message we are putting out there. And uh, anyhow, that's that's a long ramble. Sorry to spend that much time answering one simple question about what's my opinion on it. My opinion on it is if you don't... If you don't want to be beholden to somebody, don't sign their contract and don't take their money. Um, that's pretty simple. Um, <clears throat> which of these next ones should I go through? Oh, one one question is, when is Uncle Larry going to be on another TV show? Uh, <laughs> that's funny. My Uncle Larry, Larry Stickler. Uh, he's been on many episodes. in and they are some of our highest rated episodes. And I don't know why it is, because it's not like we shoot big animals when when he and I go together. Uh, we sure have a ton of fun, and maybe that comes across well uh, on video. I, I, I'm i not sure. Uh, it's a special time for me, and that's kind of why I, I, I picked this question is... For me, at age I'll be fifty-two here in six weeks. Um, Who I hunt with is getting to be more and more important. Um, I just I know that I've only got X number of hunts in the bag, and now that I my bag is probably closer to empty than full, uh, I want to do them with people who are just a joy to be with that have no ego about it, no pressure. It's just about having fun. And that's what Uncle Larry is. So uh, before I get into the tangent of of the answer, uh, we keep applying Uncle Larry for tags, but he's been on a, on a drought lately. So he, and he didn't get any tags this year for 2016. So Maybe 2017, because he'll be 71 next year. He'll be 70 in about two weeks, 10 days. He'll be 70. And he's been fighting uh, lymphoma. He's been on experimental chemo for a long time. Uh, and uh, it's just important for me that we, he and I get to go on another hunt. And so that, that gets to, uh, I, the, the reason the, the question is valid is gets to why Corey and I are on this hunt together uh every year I get lots and lots of invitations to go and hunt with people uh be part of this media group that's doing a hunt or be part of you know this outfit that's doing a hunt and and it's not that I don't want to go and hunt with those folks Uh, it's just that I only have limited time and so I'm gonna pick and choose hunts with people who I just have a blast with and And I think when we talk about our hunting buddies, you know, when you say, yeah, this is one of my hunting pals or one of my hunting buddies. To me, that's like a level of friendship that's above, oh, this is one of my coworkers or, oh, this is some guy I went to school with. No, when you say this is my hunting buddy, that's like, it's just, it's a higher level of, uh, uh, I guess, Recognition or appreciation for who, what that person's values are, how they behave. Um, at least to me, it is. And the, coming on this hunt with Corey, we did a hunt last year. We, we talked about doing a hunt for years, and finally did one last year. And now again this year, and we're already conniving about what we're going to do for next year. And this hunt isn't even over with. But I, I think it just <clears throat> it's important for me, anyhow at this point in my life, to, that my hunting be all about having fun, and <laughs> you might even see me shoot a raghorn on this hunt if the chance happens, just because it would be fun. I've I, I, I have, I've reached a point now in my life that I don't really care about size of anything. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. If two elk are standing there, I'm shooting the bigger one. Uh but I I don't know. It's this. It seems like it's happened over the last two or three years where I've went from kind of being pretty intense about my hunting to now my hunting is just soaking up every minute of every hunt, every sunset, every sunrise, and knowing that someday I'm going to be relegated to my front porch in the rocking chair drinking coffee. And I want to be able to say, you know what? I gave it all the fun I could get out of it. I took from it every lesson, every experience, and hopefully I gave back as much as I took from it. But So, I know that's kind of a tangent to the question of when is Uncle Larry going to be on there, but I I think it touches on an important point. uh, That we've all had somebody in our life who left us too soon. Um, And there are still people in our lives who are here who, if you do nothing this year that that is super special, commit yourself to at least one weekend of taking somebody close to you hunting, who you've been saying for too many years now, Yeah, yeah, let's go do that someday. Yeah, let's go do that someday. Well, someday doesn't always get here. I've lost two close friends this year already, both of them in their 50s and uh you just you never know when that someday is not going to be available so if you can find somebody who's dear to you and make this year be that someday and if if you do that then this podcast will be worth its worth its while so oh boy what else do we want to talk about here on this list um Some of you have been sending in a lot of political comments or questions lately. (laughs) One is, who am I voting for? Well, I never say who I'm voting for because then it implies I'm with one party or the other and I'm not. Um, And I, yeah, I end up voting for somebody one way or the other. And someone might say, well, that means you're with this party or that party. Uh, A lot of times, if you looked at my ballot, it would probably be... I don't know. There'd be a few curveballs in there. Let's just put it that way. Um, And uh, with it being a political election year, and you've heard me say this on the podcast before, just because you go and vote on November 8th, yeah, I think it's the 8th, 7th, whatever it is, that first Tuesday in November, um, that's not your only time that you exercise your advocacy for wildlife, and for hunting. In fact, that's just one day out of 365. So as much as it's an election year, and I've, I wish I could get rid of Facebook during election years. It's just, it's out of hand. <clears throat> but I, I don't view my voting as the only time I involve myself in the process. In fact, it's one day out of a year that I involve myself in the process. I have to involve myself in the process all the rest of the year or else I'm gonna get left behind. So anyhow, <clears throat> bear with me here while I take a drink of water. Uh that's the downside of doing these solo podcasts is you end up doing all the talking. And uh kinda of where'd you throw it out, but the as it being a polit- uh political year, an election year. I'm sure every one of you cannot wait until political ads are off your TV and that you quit getting calls from political action campaigns and all the other stupid stuff. I, I'm about ready to turn my phone off, get rid of my email, get rid of everything until after November. But <clears throat> the, the other part related to politics is I, I worry when hunting issues become partisan. That somehow this issue related to conservation and hunting is a left issue or a right issue. It's not. It never has been. Um, And I don't know if this is right or not. But my observation is that some of the things related to hunting go to how closely connected that person and their constituents are to the natural world and in some respects that becomes a little bit of an urban rural discussion because there are hunting issues that any rural democrat would be on our side but yet an urban republican would probably not and that's just the reality of them trying to be well some would say no that's them wanting to save their butt and get reelected uh A more diplomatic way would be to say no that's somebody trying to represent their constituents point is i would say if you are in a rural area you're probably you're you're more accessible to the natural world uh you probably have some friends who are in if you aren't yourself in activities that result in the food supply, and the death of animals, whether it's farming, whether it's ranching, whether it's commercial fishing, you know, whatever it might be. And so your connection there probably gives you more open-mindedness towards the activity of hunting. Those people in the highly urbanized areas don't... uh, (laughs) And this is just a fact, and, and I don't mean it against urbanites and create a, a, a rural versus urban battle or, or, or tags, and dividing lines, <coughs> but let's face it. We are a product of our environment. Our opinions are built upon our life experiences. That Those, I don't think many people would argue with the fact that our opinions, our perspectives are based upon what our life experiences have been. If you live in highly urbanized areas, your connection to the natural world has not been a big part of your life experiences as a general rule. So a lot of these political issues are not as much R&D left and right as they are rural versus urban. And the suburban, rural suburban, you know, They break the counties into A counties are highly urban, B counties are suburban counties, C counties are suburban rural, a mix of the two, and D counties are rural counties is how the the media world breaks that out. The A counties, i.e. the urban counties, there's a lot of great people there. It's just that their life experiences are not what ours are, so their understanding and possibly their open-mindedness about our activities is not going to be there. And therefore, the people they elect are going to be reflective of that. So, anyhow, I could go, I could really go on a long rant about not necessarily politics itself, but about how wound up people get over politics and elections as if that is the only time they need to be engaged. And that really chaps me. I see people spend so much time pissed off about this candidate or that candidate. And it's very seldom are they spending all their energy promoting one candidate. It's that they hate the other candidate. Fine, I'm I'm good with that, that you don't like the other candidate. But if you spent as much time weeping, wailing, moaning, and crybabying about candidate A, B, C, D, E, or F, and you use that time to write letters or emails to attend public hearings to, to weigh in on, uh, public uh, issues related to hunting, it'd be a way better use of your time. Way better use. I don't think, I don't think hunting was ready for social media. I look at what shows up on social media in the hunting world. I hate it. I I hate, (laughs) I hate having a Facebook page. Because it's become so negative. It's become so, every day is a bad day. Every, you know, It's all about reposting this problem. And, and I don't know, maybe because I subscribe to the theory that when you wake up every morning, if you think it's going to be a good day or a bad day, you're probably right. So I wake up every morning and say it's going to be a good day. And I'm just about 99.9% of the time I'm right and i think some people wake up and say i'm going to facebook to make sure it's a bad day today <laughs> uh, i don't know i'm i'm getting so far out on a tangent here i, I can't even believe i'm i'm doing this but i i d- would just ask all of you who and i understand being passionate about topics being passionate about things and that's okay but save some of that passion for hunting save some of it for conservation save some of it for public lands issues because those are important issues for not just us today but generations down the road and those of us who who were the beneficiaries of our predecessors those predecessors they put a lot of time into conservation into volunteerism into other things they didn't make it a political partisan issue And, uh, that's, I'm always trying to stiff arm the idea that our hunting issues are, are partisan issues. Uh, I, I don't buy into that. And I think it's a very dangerous path to go down. Uh, and and the reason I think it is, is if we make it a partisan issue, here's what the future would look like. We're going to go and find some group that is sympathetic to just our cause. Well, if they're sympathetic to just your cause and not other causes, they're probably in a minority. And if you are the minority in any political body, the odds are you're not going to get much done. And the other side at times is going to look at your issues, i.e. hunting, and say, you know what? A way to get even with them is to go after one of their pet issues, hunting. So we need to be... Uh, I guess, smart enough to craft messages, craft policy, that all sides of the aisle understand its importance and its value. And if we can't do that, then maybe we're uh, we're not working hard enough or maybe we're not thinking hard enough. So, oh boy, I wonder how many people got mad with those comments. <laughs> I'm going to give you a fake email. <laughs> email to... Blank, blank, blank. (laughs) No, you can email it to contact at randynewberg.com. My wife manages all my emails. So when I'm on the road like this, that poor woman, she deserves a raise. Since she works for free, she definitely deserves a raise. But uh, she handles all of that stuff for me. So if I just made you mad, send an email to contact at randynewberg.com. So um, another thing that this isn't even a podcast issue or, or I mean uh, a hunt talk question but it kind of gets into this politics and this advocacy thing and there was an issue that came up recently that related to hunting and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service took public comment and they received 30 what was it 38 or 3900 public comments over 3,000 anyhow. And over 800 of those comments were, did not state whether they were for or against. They were, I suspect it was just the rambling kind of comments that often get made. Over 2,300, I believe, of those comments were opposing what we in the hunting community were asking for. And only in less than a hundred, I think it was 84, 85 hunters commented. So 20, 2,300 people on the other side commented, and 84 or 85 of us commented. Now, how in the hell are we going to get our voice heard if we don't make our voice heard? How many times have you heard someone say, oh, they don't listen to me anyhow? I'm, I'm about ready to just call BS on that. To me, I'm starting to see that as the biggest cop-out, bail-out line of smokescreen because you're too damn lazy to comment. I mean, we are getting our teeth handed to us on these issues. And we're going to get what we've earned if we continue to sit on our hands and not provide comment. Not attending meetings. Uh, uh, They've made it so easy now, you don't even have to attend a meeting. You just go to the, Google is your friend, right? Go to the Federal Register or go to your state agency or whatever. Google it. It comes up and there will be a comment button. I have to sit down and say, make sure you affirmatively state that I am in favor of or I am opposed to. So that they know and then give your your reasoning if you want to. But for us to get whoop that bad, I I I don't know <laughs> I don't want to I guess make make one the results of one comment period the the uh, what would I say the the manner in which everything happens i mean maybe there's other comment periods where our voices heard better but to me it shows what i i've been worried about is that a lot of people want to complain about it they'll go out on facebook after the decision is made and say oh look at this blah 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 and then you say well did you comment well no i didn't know uh, blah blah well these agency people have to listen to the comments And guess what? They got 2,300 comments against our issue and only 80-some comments in favor of our issue. What are they going to do? They're going to do what the overwhelming majority of people asked. Because the overwhelming majority of hunters didn't reply. (laughs) It's that simple. And, you know, we are a minority in society. We are, it depends on which studies you listen to, we're 8% of society. We're 15% of society. If you add in the anglers, hunters, anglers, or those who do both, we might be 20%. Okay? A couple things. If you are that small portion of society, you better expect that you got to do more than your share. That's just a fact. Y- if you just do proportionately your share, we're going to get proportionately our share of outcomes. It's going to be a pretty small portion. It's, it's, it's just, there's no way around that. Also, if you're in the minority, the scrutiny on your activity is much, much higher. The damage of one rogue, crazy, wingnut individual to the entire activity is far, far greater than if your activity is something in the majority of, of society. You know, let's say baseball. All right, how many kids grow up playing baseball? Probably a majority of baseball or softball. Probably a majority of Americans play baseball or softball sometime in their life. <clears throat> one little incident in baseball or softball doesn't have nearly the impact of one incident in hunting. Why? Because we are a much smaller segment of society. And it places a much higher demand, a much higher level of accountability on what we do. It's that simple. So I uh, that gets me into more trouble, I'm sure. But uh, And I'm not doing this because I'm frustrated at the elk. I'm actually having a hell of a good time down here in New Mexico. But uh, some of these days when I have lots of road time, like when you drive 1,300 miles, your mind starts thinking through a lot of this stuff. And and maybe I, I'm saying it and I should just keep my mouth shut, but... I I worry that we in the hunting world are are letting some things slip through our fingers. And some will say, oh, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's this, it's that. Well, part of it is just apathy. There's a lot of hunters out there who think that buying their license is their contribution to conservation, their contribution to hunting. And maybe it was at one time. Back when the hunters were 30% of America, and the majority of America lived in farms and other places or were connected to the natural world. But it's not that way anymore. So we're just going to have to get our game going and get better at it. That's, that's just what we got to do. So count me in on that one. All right, what else we got here? Randy, why are you such a pronghorn freak? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me think about that. Why am I crazy about pronghorns? Well, they are unique only to North America, so that's, that's cool. They are my favorite tasting animal of everything I shoot. In fact, the only downside with pronghorn is they're not the size of elk, so that when I shoot a pronghorn my freezer is empty in a hurry. Uh I I wish I could tell you why pronghorn have so much appeal to me with from a real s- serious uh sense. I I don't it's hard to it I think it's harder to explain what appeals to me about pronghorn than when we all get asked the question of why do you hunt? For me I've I've gotten Excuse me. I've gotten better at answering the question of why I hunt. I've done three YouTube videos about why I hunt: food, conservation, connection to the natural world are my three main reasons for hunting. Uh, when, and a lot of people ask me why are pronghorn my favorite animal to to hunt. Uh, I don't know. I, it's just something about them, something about where they live, something about what they are. So <clears throat> probably not. the... Uh, a good answer, but it's it's the only answer I can, can really think of. And I can't say that it it's a toss up <clears throat> between pronghorn with a rifle, pronghorn with anything, and elk with a bow. Elk with a bow is so challenging and so frustrating, at least on public land. I, I I'm trying to think how many days I hunt just to get an encounter. And then how many encounters it takes to have success? I apologize for the coyotes yiping out here. I can hear some coyotes. I don't know if they're coming through on the mic. But anyway, I, th- I think that's part of why uh, archery elk is so exciting, so appealing, so intriguing is it's a lot of work. At least the public land self-guided hunts that I do, they are they're tough. But man, when you have success... And I don't care if it's a cow, if it's a spike, if it's a raghorn, or if it's one of those big, big whoppers. It doesn't matter to me. I I think that public land archery elk hunting, and just, well, I mean, we get to hunt them with a bow when they're bugling. So that, there's something about standing there in the dark waiting for the sun to come up. And hearing that noise, and I don't care if it's right below you and it causes your body to vibrate, or if it's a mile away and you got to go over th- two ridges and wear yourself out to get there. There is something about archery elk hunting that just is—it's everyone needs to experience it. Let's let's just put it that way. And uh, I I wish I could ask all of you what your favorite species is to hunt and why, because I'd be interested to know be interesting if someone ever did a study or survey about, uh, what, what people's hunting tendencies or preferences are and why. Maybe it's out there and I haven't read it or haven't found it, but I think it'd be interesting. Here, here's an interesting one. So a guy stops me the other day and, and I'd be interested to in know what any of the listeners think about this. <coughs> and, uh, He said, you know what? Someone with a big website like you, you know what you need to do? You need to start a voluntary harvest system, uh, animal harvest system on your website. I'm like, well, why would people do that? And so we talked about it. And driving down the road, obviously, I've had too much windshield time. But the, the concept was something like this, that people could go and say, all right, I I'm anonymous. I'm not going to tell you what unit. I'll tell you what state. It was this species. I shot it with a bow. I shot it on this date. And here are the conditions. And he, he was more interested in the conditions of weather, like temperature. Was it raining? Was it snowing? Was it hot? And moon phase. His theory was then somebody would have an actual database that maybe has some relevance to... Prove that moon phase affects things, weather fronts affects things da da da, because we all hear it, oh yeah, you don't want to hunt at this point, oh you got you can't miss that day, kind of thing, and uh, I thought about that, I'm like, hmm, that'd be an interesting thing. I wonder if anyone's done it out there if if someone has done that out there and you know about it, a voluntary uh anonymous uh game reporting website, let me know um. I think it'd be kind of cool <coughs> if we had that data out there, uh, but I think it would only be valid if the non-successful hunters also went and reported. Because uh, then we we if only successful hunters reported, I think it might skew the data a little bit. Um, it'd be helpful to know about unsuccessful hunters, but anyhow, that I'm not sure how that uh, interaction got in my head what, for, from the last topic that I was talking about. But I think that would be something that'd be kind of cool if, if it could be done, uh, probably be useful. I, and in my mind, because I'm, a, I'm living in the West and I do mostly Western hunting, uh, I'd be interested to know about it specifically for elk. Um, because I, I, if there is one animal I hunt that's more affected by conditions or their behaviors and patterns are more affected by conditions, I think it's elk. Uh, those of you who are whitetail nuts, uh, you prob- maybe there is a place out there in the whitetail world. I'm just not dialed in or tuned in on that to know well enough. But <clears throat> the whitetail guys, they if not a public database, certainly their own notes, uh, a lot of those guys keep copious notes about every item about every day they they sit in the stand so all right i wonder how many more questions we can get to here okay this one randy where do i find quiet rain gear (laughs) Uh, answer if you want absolute waterproof rain gear it will not be breathable and it will not be quiet think about it there is no fabric in the world That can be 100% waterproof unless it's a PVC type thing. Well, the PVC type stuff like the commercial fisherman wear, go walk around in the woods with that on. See how quiet that is or how noisy that is. Uh, And uh, (laughs) then also see how well it breathes when you walk up a mountain in... And I think your your answer will <clears throat> will come become pretty obvious. There there is no absolute waterproof rain gear out there. There is stuff that I mean, you guys know I use Sika gear. Sika has some amazing rain gear that is the, the best I've found. That is uh, a a mix of breathable. It it still cannot be 100% waterproof. Um, I've been in some pretty nasty downpours in it, and I've stayed very dry. And I've hiked around in it, and it's kept me, you know, allowed the, the moisture and perspiration to go through the, the Gore-Tex liners. But I, I think a lot of people are, are looking for the dream item that, that doesn't exist out there. And I'm surprised how many questions I get about rain gear. Uh, and maybe it, it surprises me because I, I hunt in pretty arid areas in the west, and maybe a lot of people have to hunt in the rain more than i do but and i'm kind of spoiled from that respect maybe not spoiled um when it's raining hard we just shut down the cameras we we don't hunt in the rain and uh, at least to the degree we don't have to and here's why is the audio is terrible because all you hear is the raindrops tapping on my rain gear and the mics pick that up or we have these weather covers we put over the cameras and all you hear is the rain and hail hitting the camera cover, and it makes for terrible audio. So that's why, and it's a good way to ruin a four or five thousand dollar camera, is to take it out in the rain and let it get wet. Uh, odds are you're you're probably not going to do very well uh, keeping that stuff working and functioning if it gets wet. So. <clears throat> Oh, let's see, Randy. Where did you get your information about your public land series? Okay, I'm not sure if this person is asking because they they want to punch holes in my my facts uh, on my YouTube public land series, uh, or if they want to share it or talk about it. So, <clears throat> um, the those of you who have been following that series, we did a 16 episode series, and when I get back next week, we're launching the final. Episode 16 on our YouTube channel, Randy Newberg Hunter, Uh, we're launching the final video of that 16. So episode 16 is going to launch. And that episode is about what you can do. And just to refresh everyone's mind, what it is, is there's this crazy notion about transferring the federal lands to the states. And on the surface, yeah, that sounds all great and dandy until you start looking at every state and what these state land board rules are like. And we, we've we definitely ticked off a lot of people with that video series, and that's good. Uh, a lot of people still argue with me that I'm making this up, and I knew they would argue with me with a lot of those facts, with a lot of those claims that we've made. So every video starts with a series of facts and ends with my conclusions based on those facts. Some people may not agree with my conclusions, and that's fine. But to this person's question the question of where did i get the information i got just about all of it from the state land board websites <coughs> and i got a lot of it from other studies and reports that have been done by economists uh been done by policy groups um just about every video there if you had a specific question okay randy where did you get the information that colorado says that state lands are not public lands Well, I got it from the Colorado State Land Board webpage, And we launched that video, I think, in late April or early May. Uh, It was one of the first state-by-state videos we did. And Colorado State Land Board used to have on the recreation page, when you click the tab that said recreation, in the very first paragraph said, Colorado State Trust lands are not public lands for purposes of recreation. So I used that quote. Well, since then... Colorado State Land Board has went and removed that page from their, or that paragraph from their website. They've actually redid quite a few pages on their website. And I don't know if it was just coincidence or if they got a lot of heat about it. Um, if you go out to the New Mexico State Land Board website right now, it still says at the bottom New Mexico State Trust lands are not public lands. If you go to the Arizona State Land Board website, there's a big notice out there that says, notice, Arizona state trust lands are held in trust for blah, 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 are not public lands. So I'm not making this stuff up. I'm taking the facts and I'm, I am I know I'm making a lot of politicians mad because I'm getting heat from them. And that's exactly what we wanted to do. Because if and, and you've heard me say it. Now, if you have time, go watch the video series. It's It does way more justice to the topic than I can do on this podcast. And if you go to, I think it was podcast 10 I did with Dan Doty. Uh, we did an overview of it. And really the the whole idea of state transfer is just a smoke and mirror thing. It's the same people who for decades and decades have been wanting the federal government to sell the public lands. To private parties. It's it's not state transfer, it's public land disposal is what it is. So point being, I don't put stuff out there unless I've done my research. Uh, if there's one skill <laughs> of being a CPA that's been somewhat helpful in what I do, it's that you make sure you get your ducks in a row before you stick your neck out there. Uh, and I would provide uh any of those links to anyone or those uh websites and, and citations to anyone who wants them uh again just email them at contact at and i'll get them to you so that said um our youtube channel thanks to all of you who've been subscribing man it is growing like crazy and we're shooting tons and tons of content uh every hunt we have a whole script full of of additional uh information how to we call them hub content in the in our world of of what we do the the main episode say an elk hunt that's called the tent event like a big circus tent and then all the other videos that we link there that are linked around it those are considered hub content so when uh In past years, before we really started the YouTube channel, which we started in January, we'd just go out and do hunts, and we'd prepare them for TV. Well, now that once they're done on TV, they go to YouTube, we're having to think about, all right, what is all the hub content that we have to shoot? So it's not like we didn't have enough to do when we're out here. On this hunt here with Corey, we've got eight hub content videos that we're going to try to shoot and that's not just turn the mic on for two minutes and call it good it takes multiple takes it requires us to actually rehearse and think about all right how do i want to say this what do i say how do i get the point across so it's a lot more work but man we are reaching a lot more people and uh, i hope that all of you who already are watching our youtube channel that you'll share it with others Uh, we got some more fun projects coming up on on youtube uh we've got a hunt that i know we got one more youtube exclusive hunt that's coming up uh, before the end of the year we're editing that out (coughs) and uh you'll get to see that one and then of all the hunts we're doing this year we're trying to pick and choose okay if we're doing 12 hunts 10 go to the network two we, we might end up with 13 hunts two or three might go as YouTube exclusives. So uh, the the other thing you might see us doing on YouTube, and it's it's just easier for us to, to do it this way, and I'll try to explain, is we get a lot of requests of, Randy, have you ever duck hunt? It? Yeah, I do a ton of duck hunting, but you don't see it on the TV show, one, because it doesn't fit what we promised to deliver for our sponsors. Two... <coughs> It's, it's very expensive and complicated to go and get public land filming permits for a one-day hunt. So I'll use an example. The Forest Service and the BLM, their rate is between $150 a day and $250 a day. Their application fee is anywhere from $100 to $300. So let's say I was going to go do a one-day hunt on BLM. Well, I might have $250 of an application fee. And I might have $250 for that day use fee. So I got $500 tied up in just one day of a hunt. So I've I've stayed away from doing those kind of things. Um, And if I do some of them for YouTube, and we'll definitely tell people, oh, hey, guess what? I'm at a friend's place or i'm this or that and we'll be doing it not to tell them about the location and we won't be doing it to tell them about oh this is an opportunity for you because we focus on public land self-guided adventures but in order for us to film some of the how-to and some of the tips techniques tactics sometimes we might have to go to a, a private place that not that, not we're, you know, it's, again, it's not like we're going to pay a bunch of money. It's just someone I know, hey, can I come to your place? Can I film this? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So we're trying to get more of that kind of content out there on YouTube because we get a lot of demand for it in our emails, but it's just hard to do when we have these confines that we've placed on ourselves of self guided public land. So if you do see us doing a a duck hunt, or doing a trapping episode, or doing something else that's YouTube only. um, We'll tell you if it's private land. Um, And if it is private land, it's just because the logistics, the cost, and the fact that it's instructional, uh, not an adventure. You know, not like, hey, you can come here and every one of you can hunt ducks on this piece of private land. No, it won't be about that. It'll be talking about... You know something in what we do for duck hunting or something we do for coyote hunting i mean i do a lot of predator hunting and just about all my predator hunting is on private land just because i have relationships with people uh and it's probably half private half public so anyhow (coughs) uh, a little bit of an explanation about why we have some complications in what we do and it's just about all related to film permits um there, there was a bill in Congress, and it's still sitting there. It still hasn't passed. I think this is the fourth year in a row now it's been in Congress, where if you're a crew of less than five, a film crew of less than five, you would be able to buy an annual license. I think the fee suggested fee is $500 a year, and then you could go and film on any federal lands and not have to worry about all this permit stuff because in addition to the cost, uh, the other part of the, that I failed to mention about when we go do some of these tips and tactics things, uh, these small one-day shoots, is it also takes usually 60 to 90 days to get the permit uh, turned around. And, you know, if, if we come up with an idea, I can't wait 60 to 90 days to go and do it. Oh, let's go do this about this issue related to snowstorm. Well, in 60 to 90 days, I might not have a snowstorm to... To have as the topic about this animal behavior or whatever so anyhow that's that's more stuff we're going to be doing with youtube um we're we have a bunch of old episodes that never made it to tv they're just sitting on the editing (laughs) as they say the editing room floor um we're thinking about taking some of those uh and throwing them on youtube also um and like the podcast we always ask for requests of topics on this podcast if you have ideas or thoughts of what you'd want us to do with youtube as far as content whether it's instructional whether it's this kind of hunt that kind of hunt uh let us know uh because we're we're very flexible we're small nimble uh we can we can do a lot of things that are very specific to what we hear people want to want to watch so last question i think and uh this one is it's an easy one to answer because it's coming up is randy what does your bucket list look like well my bucket list is kind of weird uh it has i'll tell you what's on that bucket list and i can't necessarily say what's in what priority of order uh mountain caribou is on that bucket list uh coos deer as they as we incorrectly call them they're really pronounced cows deer uh roosevelt elk and columbia blacktail if, if i had to put a bucket list together those would probably be my at the at the very top and the difficulty i'm going to have is when you travel as much as i do i have a deal with my wife that if i'm hunting i'm going to be filming because it's not fair to her that I'd go somewhere hunting, be gone even more, uh, and not not be filming. So the mountain caribou one, it's been on my list for so long. But the only place you can do it is in Canada. And as a non resident alien you have to hire a guide. So I don't know, that might never get off my bucket list. Uh unfortunate, but just part of what I've chosen to do here with the T V show. So Um, the and the reason I said this one's a pretty easy one to answer is the coos deer is going to get off my bucket list, at least as far as hunting them in January. I'm going to Arizona and, uh, a lot of you may not know that Arizona, a lot of their units are over the counter archery for, for mule deer. And a lot of the coos deer units are over the counter archery in January. So I'm going to go do that. Maybe shoot a few quail, uh, Get out of the cold Montana winter for a week, and it's going to take a big, big stroke of luck for me to get that coos deer off my bucket list. But at least as far as hunting them, uh, that, that'll, that I can say, yeah, I've really seriously hunted them. But let's face it, the odds of a, killing a coos deer, archery coos deer, very, very slim. Then you add to the fact that I've never hunted them before so it's going to be a learning experience for me. <coughs> and then you add to the fact that I'm going to be uh in the company of a, at least one, maybe two camera guys. <laughs> so all of a sudden I've uh, I've stacked a really tough deck uh stacked it against me even harder. So and as far as the the uh Columbia blacktail and the Roosevelt elk I got to get those off my bucket list. I I've seen some guys hunt Columbia blacktail when it snows in in November in Oregon and Washington, and I don't know what weather events cause those to be snow instead of rain. But man, it looks like a ton of fun to go hunt Columbia blacktails in November when they're rutting in the snow. I'm I'm not sure why, but it just. Something that appeals to me. And the coloring and markings and the antler color of Columbia blacktail just really, um, really strike me. I had, uh, as of, you know, last year, last August, I took an item off my bucket list and that was Sitka blacktail. So, but my fear is, much like Sitka blacktail, once I take it off, quote unquote, the bucket list, it now becomes on my becomes very high on my want to do it again list. <laughs> I want to go back and hunt sick of blacktails in the worst way. So maybe I'll get to do that next year. I don't know. But anyhow, everyone has a bucket list. I, I'm always interested when I talk to people about what's on their bucket list and why it's on their bucket list. And Roosevelt elk, as far as why that's on my bucket list, they're just something about the the thick, dense you know, green, mossy, wet, damp, rainy forest country that they live in, in the coastal areas. And the fact that they grow funky-looking antlers. Their antlers usually have, like, this red cedar color to them. And they're massive. Not not necessarily the antlers. The antlers are heavy, but their body size are huge compared to our Rocky Mountains. So that's just, I, I don't know, somehow, some way. I want to get those off. Not this. That's a weird way to say it. I I just in my hunting days somehow I want to fit the time and place to go and have that experience. Let's put it that way. Um, all of those live in in kind of varied terrain and places. You know, the coos deer lives in the deserts, uh, the mountains of the deserts, I should say. Uh, so that terrain and that whole experience is intriguing. And then you look at the the rainforests of Washington and Oregon, those Sitka Black- or Columbia blacktails and and Roosevelt elk—that's a unique experience a unique landscape. And then mountain caribou. <coughs> I remember reading about mountain caribou when I was a kid, and I just thought that would be the coolest thing I could ever do. And here I am, fifty years, fifty-two, almost, and I still haven't uh, haven't done it. Man, I gotta work on that. So, anyhow, folks, I'm sorry to, to drag you along and keep you going. Uh, those are just a few of the questions, and I know I went off on some tangents. Uh, the crew still has not showed up, and we're an hour and a half from when we started this thing. So, I'm not sure uh, if they got lost, if they shot an elk, or what the deal is. But uh, we'll uh, we'll be able to tell you when Corey gets on. We're going to put a headset on him here in the next couple of days, Corey Jacobson and I, and we're going to do another podcast while we're down here. And I'll be able to report at that time if on the day Randy took off, did Corey kill his elk? So anyhow, folks, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Happy hunting.